Corinthians 3. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you are not yet ready for it. Indeed, you still are not ready. You are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarrelling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God, who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labour. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple, and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. If any one of you thinks he is wise by the standards of this age, he should become a fool, so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness, and again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about men. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. If you're here for the first time, you're probably thinking, crumbs, I feel like I've picked up somebody else's story partway through, and I'm not entirely sure what's going on. Uh, and if that's you, that's great. We're going to try and work through this passage as helpfully as we can. If you've been with us for the last few weeks, you're probably starting to think there are some familiar themes here. In fact, if you know of the different letters in the New Testament, you know that some are very punchy and direct. Deal with an issue, move on. Deal with an issue, move on. 1 Corinthians is a little bit more, we come back to something, we come back to something, we come back to something. And it means as you're growing through the letter, you start to think, oh, hang on, I've heard a bit of that, and I'm seeing how Paul's building this letter, this argument, as he's writing to this group of Christians in Corinth. Now, hopefully that means, if you remember back to chapter 10, or verse 10 of chapter 1, 
you know that the beginning of that letter is full of this idea to get rid of any arguments between different church leaders. It's completely godless to have the way of thinking about church leaders that the church in Corinth had. So you go from verse 18 of chapter 1 all the way through to the end of chapter 2, and Paul's been showing us that if you think about church leaders that way, church in Corinth and church today, you've got rid of godly wisdom, and you're thinking through human wisdom in the way that you're judging between people. That's what we've seen already. That's the big challenge of chapters 1 and 2. But what does that actually look like? What is that big idea? We've, we've been seeing what is right and true about what it means to receive the spirit of wisdom. We've seen that through him we can make wise and godly decisions, not just about the way that we think about church leaders, but about every area of our lives. But what does it look like on the ground? What does it look like for all of us as members? What does it look like for those of us who've been called to lead the church? And and church leaders are right at the heart of this letter, as we've seen, because they're at the heart of the fallout in Corinth. So one of the big things that Paul is trying to do is write to members to help them all think, how do I think biblically about church leaders? And at the same time, to leaders to say, what do you need to be especially mindful of? How do you actually lead in the way that builds on godly wisdom upon the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ for the good of the kingdom and to bless the people? And all of that is what is going on in chapter 3. How do Christians grow? How should we think of our leaders? And how should they seek to build the church? Now, verses 1 to 4, Paul teaches us that godly Christians grow out of worldly immaturity. Godly Christians grow out of worldly immaturity. Paul loves these believers, despite all their problems and all their shortcomings. We've seen at the very beginning of the letter how much he loved them, reminded that he was there for 18 months, which if any of you have lived anywhere for that kind of period, it's enough kind of time, isn't it, to build proper relationships with people. For them to really get to know you, for you to get to really know them, and that's what Paul experienced. His relationships were deep with these people. He begins this chapter, brothers and sisters. It's another reminder of just how much he loved them. And part of the way that he loved them was to teach them in ways they could understand. Paul, if you remember, if you know anything about this man who became an apostle, is trained as a Jewish scholar, basically. He's as wise as you could possibly be in Judaism and the Old Testament. But when he meets these people, he changes the way that he teaches and preaches and lives alongside them so that they can understand what it means. Because without being judgmental, verse 1, they really were mere infants in Christ. Their spiritual stomachs were so young. (laughs) Every mum knows this. Hopefully every dad knows this too. You don't feed a newborn baby with steak and chips. They haven't got the teeth to chew. They haven't got the stomach to digest. You have to feed them milk so that they can grow in their own understanding. And the same is true with newborn Christians. They need to be taught the basics so that they can then grow. Paul will tell 
the Romans, not to be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that takes time. It takes time to unpick all of those worldly values that you might have lived the rest of your life to this point on. That's not to underestimate the enormity of the change that happens the minute you become a Christian. And Paul's really clear about that too. He would write to the churches in Galatia and say that I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So we've got to hold these two things in tension. The minute you become a Christian, the old you is dead. And the new you is living by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is true. At the same time, our understanding grows. And we start as mere infants. It takes time to unpick all of that. And Paul knows that. He knows that beginners aren't expected to be mature. But the problem with many of the Corinthian believers was that they were no longer beginners. And they were still immature. You look in verse 2. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. When Paul wrote this letter, he didn't write it in NIV English. He wrote it in Greek. And the word for worldly in verse 3 is slightly different to the word for worldly in verse 1. And some commentators want to make a lot about that. And say, well, if you look in verse 1, what Paul is describing is that they were made of the world. In the sense that they have only just become Christians. And they're still extracting themselves from that old way of living. Whereas by the time you get to verse 3, Paul's emphasizing that their great problem is they're still characterized by the world. They're still too shaped by it. Now, I don't know whether that's making too much of the endings between those two words. But it is exactly Paul's argument. Beginners aren't expected to be mature, but beginners are expected to mature. And that is exactly what he is saying. It is, <laughs> it is un, as unnatural, if you can use that term when speaking about the supernatural work of the Spirit, it is unnatural for Christians not to grow as it would be for grown men and women still to be feeding from their mums or eating rusks for dinner. It's just, it's not what's intended. And if that's where you are, something's gone wrong. And Paul shows them exactly how it's gone wrong. He tells them in verse 3, For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Which, if you go back to chapter 1 and verse 11, is the very problem we saw him begin with at the start of the letter, my brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels, same word, quarrels among you. And in between chapters 1 and 3, we've seen how godly wisdom has been replaced by human wisdom. So now, chapter 3 is pulling all of that together. You've had all this quarreling. I've told you about the problem between human wisdom and godly wisdom. And now, chapter 3, verse 4, when one says, I follow Paul and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? Meaning, the root of all your quarreling is that you've replaced thinking as Christians with thinking as non-Christians. And that's a problem 
because you've not matured. You're an adult eating the rusk rather than enjoying the steak and chips. So how do the Corinthians need to grow? Well, for themselves, they need to stop thinking in the worldly way. We saw that in chapter 2. But a specific part of how you do that is you replace the way you think about church leaders from a worldly perspective to a godly perspective. That's chapter 3. So what Paul is going to show us from verse 5 onwards, secondly, is that godly teachers only build with humility, grace, and faithfulness. We're going to look at each of those three words as we go through. Godly teachers only build with humility, grace, and faithfulness. Now, one of the problems in Corinth is that the church were thinking and viewing and judging between and comparing their leaders with worldly wisdom. Another one of their problems was they just thought of their leaders too highly. Not only did they judge them with a worldly perspective, they thought of them too highly. So verses 5 to 9, Paul shows us that godly teachers only build with humility. How do we push godly wisdom into practice and get rid of human wisdom? He's going to show us we do it by shifting from personality and style to function. Look at verse 5. He begins with a what. We'd be expecting a who. He's been talking about people all the way through. Grammatically, we're expecting a who. He says what. What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe. The Corinthians couldn't be more wrong about the way that they were thinking about their leaders. For starters, they're only servants. Paul, Apollos, and everyone else who leads the church of Christ are only servants of Christ who have been used to bring people to him, not to them. And making a big deal about a servant only serves to show that you don't really understand the big picture. Next year... Lord willing, we all have a coronation service for King Charles. Now, I want you to imagine that you managed to go down to London and you persevere through all the queues. And by the time of the service in Westminster Abbey, you are standing right at the front of the entrance to the church. The royal, well, the massive of the royal train arrive. And out comes the king who passes by and the queen consort who passes by, and the ministers and the ministers of state and the dignitaries and foreign officials all pass by. And there at the very back, there's a great privilege for the king's staff, his butler, his permanent secretary, all the people who never get anywhere near the front page news, but a part of his household. You imagine that in the midst of all of that occasion, as the butler starts to walk with the church, you start jumping up and down and cheering, It's the butler! Woo! Everyone would think you'd lost your mind. The king's just walked in, and you're getting excited about the butler. You don't see the big picture. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. He's just a servant following in the wake of a king. Christian leaders at their very best are only servants. 
and shouldn't have been elevated in the eyes of the Corinthian believers in the way that they were. But neither is it a ministry that should be divided in the way that the Corinthians were seeking to divide it. And to show us that, Paul takes us out into the fields. He pictures ministers like farmers. Some serve at different seasons in the course of the year, and they do different work. So some, like Paul, they're the first ones on the scene because he was the one to bring the gospel to the church in Corinth. Well, he was the one to bring the gospel to Corinth. There wasn't a church. So he sows the seed, and then there's somebody else, Apollos, who seems to have been a leader who followed Paul. He comes and waters the seed. But neither of them are more important than the other, and Paul shows us that in two ways. Firstly, verse 8, the farmers in the field aren't divided between themselves. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose. It's got the same idea in verse 9. Together they're fellow workers. There is no battle for supremacy between these farmers. They know they have one purpose, which if you're in the field is to see a harvest grow. If you're in the church, it's to see Christians be born and grow. There is one purpose. There's no fighting between the farmers. The second thing is, not only are they united, they're aware that ultimately they can't do any of it on their own. Verse 6. I planted, says Paul, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. Paul couldn't control the birds to make sure they didn't eat the seed that he scattered. Apollos couldn't control the sun or the rain to make sure that the seeds could germinate. Only God can do all of that. Which is how it puts all of this farming in perspective. Verse 7, so neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. I don't want to speak on Alistair and Jenny's behalf. You can ask them afterwards. But it seems to me that farming forces you to be humble. There is so much that is outside of your control. And exactly the same thing is true in ministry. Neither Paul nor Apollos, nor Calvin nor Spurgeon, nor Matthew nor James, any of us have any power in ourselves to bring anyone to Christ or to bring about spiritual fruit in their lives. That's beyond our gift. Only God can do that. So, Dear Corinthian brothers and sisters, writes Paul, you have completely forgotten the big picture if you make a fuss out of specific leaders. Not only are they not trying to fight for supremacy themselves, they have one purpose that they cannot accomplish by themselves. But, secondly, that's not to ignore the importance of Paul's work. And we're going to get into a bit more of that in chapter 4, either next week or the week after. But, What we see in verse 10 is that Paul reminds them that he did lay the foundation as a wise builder. And we know he's meaning that in two ways. Think about what was going on in Corinth. He literally was the first one to Corinth to sow the seed of the gospel that built the church. He was the first one in a city that had never heard of the Lord Jesus Christ who said, I need for you to hear the message of hope to deal with your sin. I need you to know that there is a way to be right before God. I need you to know that that is absolutely nothing to do with you. I need you to know about a God who would willingly send his own eternal son into the world that he had made that had turned his back on him 
to be contracted from all eternity to the span of a life that lived only a brief period of time, a perfect life none of us could live, before he died upon the cross, the death that we deserve to die. And as you trust in him, he will take all of the sin of your life and the judgment that you deserve and give you everything that is his, his eternal life, his relationship with the Father, all of the blessings that will be ours both now and for all eternity. That's the foundation that Paul laid. And he was the first one to do that in Corinth. But there's a second way that's also true. We're going to pick up on that when we get into chapter 4. So it's helpful to see the seed being sown here. He writes to the Ephesians that Christians are fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. There's these layers of truth and meaning. In the, in the context of their own local church, Paul was the first one to sow the seed of the gospel. In the context of redemptive history, of God's plan for all men and women and boys and girls, it's the apostles and prophets who are given the gift of the Spirit to do what? To witness all that the Lord Jesus Christ did, which means when you open your Bible, you are reading the eyewitness testimony of those who saw it. But not only to see it, to explain it to the men and women and boys and girls of those first churches like the one in Corinth. And not only to explain it, but to record it in the New Testament. So that we can have absolute confidence in our lives that what we believe is the word of God. Built through the ministry of the apostles and prophets. Now, we know what's going on in Corinth. They've got these immature Christians who love this power struggle. So you hear all of that and you think, aha, I am on team Paul because he's one of the apostles and prophets upon whom the church was built. And Paul is going to kill that idea of even the beginning of pride before it starts there in verse 10. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation. Even though beginning of chapter 1, Paul was called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And even though he's the first one on the scene in Corinth who can share the gospel with people who've never, ever heard it before, Paul says all of that is only because of the grace of God. Godly leaders build with humility and grace. But thirdly, godly teachers only build with faithfulness. That's what he's explaining to us in verses 10 to 17, in which he's clearly got some specific people in mind, doesn't mention them by name. We don't know who they are exactly. But what he writes about is as relevant for all of us today, and especially leaders and teachers in the church who continue to build on the foundation that Paul is laid. So this is where all of us as elders, especially in our church, those of you who would long to be elders in the future, this is where we're reminded of the importance of what we do. There are three ways you can follow Paul. Number one, some, verse 10, build with care. They build with care. And verse 11, they only build on the foundation that has already been laid, on Jesus Christ and him crucified. And in building up the church, verse 12, they use gold, silver, and costly stones, which is not the quantity surveyor's list for a physical church building. It's a description of the effort 
and the care and the sacrifice of building the church, building up the faith, building up the men and women of God, such that on the day Jesus returns to judge the world, verse 13, their work will be shown for what it is, and the quality of their work will be revealed. For those who've built with care, verse 14, what they have built in terms of the faithfulness of their ministry will survive God's examination and the builder will receive a reward. It's builder one. Builder teacher of the church, number one. Builder teacher number two is careless. Verse 12, they don't build with gold, silver, and costly stones. They build with wood, hay, or straw. They build in such a way that shows they don't really want to exert themselves. Maybe you've had experience in your own home of having something built by a builder who just wants to get the job done as quickly as possible with the least inconvenience possible to himself. And it's a mess. That's what's described here. Paul says, verse 15, their attitude and approach to ministry will be revealed on the last day too. And the shallowness of what they have built will be burnt up. They themselves will be saved. Not because of their works, but because they were genuine believers. But they'll be saved, look at that description, only as one escaping through the flames. I want to ask for a show of hands. I hope many of you have Roman Catholic friends. And perhaps some of you have even come from a Roman Catholic background. Verse 15 is the main verse that Roman Catholics will look to to justify the doctrine of purgatory. But if you look at what Paul is saying, he's clearly not describing any idea of purgatory whatsoever. He's describing a fire, not that will be brought upon you to purify you and cleanse you so that you can get into heaven. He's describing a fire that will reveal the motives and work in your life that you've already lived as you are then rescued for eternity. That's builder type two. The work's shoddy, but the soul survives. But there's a third person in verse 17. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. Some so-called builder teachers are actually demolition experts. They might hold themselves out to be builder teachers in the church, but their one goal is to destroy. It's to take all that is true in the gospel and unravel it. And we need to hear that as serious as it is. We need to hold on to the promises that we know are true. We know that the Lord Jesus Christ has himself promised for the universal church, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. But that doesn't mean that individual churches can't face horrible opposition. Circumstances that would indeed destroy the church. And God warns anyone who sets out to destroy his church, he will destroy. It's the same word. You destroy God's church, he will destroy that person. Why is the punishment so harsh? of who the church is. Look at verse 16. 
Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives among you? It's another one of those many reminders throughout the New Testament where you see just how much greater it is to be a Christian living after the Lord Jesus Christ than a believer living in the old covenant. In the old covenant, what did the people know? They knew something of God's name dwelling in Solomon's temple with the wonderful glory and privilege of all of that. But what do we know as new covenant believers? We know the Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune God, living with his people to change us and unite us and transform us into the image of his son whom he loves. And that is why, verse 17, God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. Which is why if anyone seeks to destroy God's temple, God will destroy that person. Now all of that should shape the way members and leaders alike think about the church and the leaders of the church. Members should be seeking that godly teachers only build with humility and grace. And if you see teachers who are not doing that, you need to speak to them and you need to remind them of what God has called them to do. But at the same time, leaders and teachers need to see what an awesome responsibility we have. With the all-seeing eye of God upon us, our motives and the way we serve will be revealed on the day the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And our work will either be rewarded or burned up. That's how serious it is to follow after Paul and to build upon the foundation that he has laid. So godly Christians grow out of worldly immaturity. Godly teachers only build by humility, grace, and faithfulness. Thirdly, and very briefly, godly Christians grow by treasuring truth. Godly Christians grow by treasuring truth. I've talked before about Thomas Chalmers and his uh, description of that expulsive power of a new affection. And, and the way that Chalmers described it is that one of the most powerful ways that God enables us to kill sin is to give us a growing affection for the Lord Jesus Christ that is so much greater, it pushes out any lesser loves, any desire for any other affection. And there's a similar way in which Paul makes a similar argument here at the end of chapter 3. How can we not deceive ourselves, verse 18, by thinking we're wise by the standards of the world? Well, the way you do it is by filling your mind with the wisdom of God. It's found in the foolishness of the cross. That's how, when you see those references to the Old Testament, we escape folly and God's judgment. It's by treasuring the truth of God's wisdom that pushes out of our minds any space left for any human wisdom. But what I want to focus on as we close is Paul's encouragement to treasure not only the truth of godly wisdom, but the truth of our faith and hope. This is, in one sense, is a hard chapter, especially for the Corinthians who are being challenged all the time to realize that they're not wise as they thought they were, that the way they're thinking about their leaders is all wrong. But how does he finish it? He doesn't hit them with more judgment and criticism and how could you possibly be so stupid? 
He fills them with love. He fills their hearts with a treasure that pushes out all the lesser loves. Look at this amazing reality that he reminds them of in verse 21. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours. So here's the Corinthians are squabbling over whether one teacher is better than another if we think of them in ways of eloquence and education, all that kind of stuff. And Paul's just blown all of that out of the water to say, what on earth are you doing? All that you have is so much bigger than that, than that argument about whether one person is better than another. He says, ministers, ministers are servants sent as gifts of God to build up the church. What is it that you have as Christians? You have, as he would write to the Ephesians, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm. Death is dead to you. (laughs) How many people would love to know that that were true in our world today? Death is dead to you if you're a Christian because we know that we believe in one who has defeated death and is now alive at the right hand of the Father. And one day, in the new creation, we will reign as God intended, perfectly, forever, with him. That's what it means to be a Christian. So lift your eyes, Paul says, to everything you have in Christ. It's going to stop you from being consumed with all of these other things. The more I reflected on how challenging this is, I was reminded of that really famous quote from C.S. Lewis. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink, sex, and ambition when infinite joy is offered. as like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We're far too easily pleased. Brothers and sisters, let's not settle for immaturity. Let's not fix our eyes on small things here and now that seem all important to us when we are missing all that is ours. Because what does Paul tell us? All things are ours in Christ. And if you get that right, then we are all free to serve. Mark Dever blessed my soul this week in the way that he pressed this home. We can only give ourselves away in this life as we should when we remember and believe and treasure the promises coming to us in the next life as God's much-loved, long-lost, and now dearly adopted children. Think on these things, and the little slights will disappear. The sting of disappointment will be softened, and even the pain of gaping griefs will dull as the joys of God's eternal presence stretching out before you Begin to dawn on your soul. Godly unity comes from treasuring God's promises. Isn't that so helpful? Godly unity comes from treasuring God's promises. We're going to sing in just a minute, but let's pause for a moment. I'm going to lead us in prayer. But as we pray, there will be all sorts of things that will be resting on your heart as well. Pray those things to the Lord in prayer.
But let's pray that God would help us as he helped the Corinthian believers to see how we need to grow out of spiritual immaturity, have a godly love for and respect for, but challenge for our leaders such that they only build with humility, grace, and faithfulness, such that all of us would grow by treasuring the truth that we have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to be a people after your own heart. We were so helpfully reminded this morning of our great calling, above every other calling, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. At the end of a full day, we confess that even this day, having heard that faithful challenge this morning, we have failed to do that. Father, as we fight after lesser joys. All of the things that we do in life become harder and fragmented. Father, we plead with you to lovingly bring us back to see all that is ours in Christ. To see what it means for us to serve as you have called us to. To have your words so filling our hearts and our minds that you are changing us. You're transforming us to be more and more after the image of the Lord Jesus Christ and we want to be like him. Father, I confess, each of us confess that there are too many things in this world that we are holding on to. Some are preferences, some are sins, some are the ways in which we are living our lives, all of them fall short as we look at that great challenge to love you as we ought. Please, would your spirit continue to change us? Change us in our homes, in the way that we relate to each other in our church family, in the way that we relate to our colleagues and fellow students during the course of this week. Father, we want to be so different that people will ask us for the reason that the hope that we have. Father, we long for those people then to come to see the grace that we have received in the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to see that in our schools and universities and workplaces transformed with our friends becoming Christians. We want to see those guests who've arrived in the homes of our church family and in the homes of many, many others. Not only given safe refuge, but be brought to see that they need a savior who they can find in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we ask that you would please do more among us than we could ask or imagine and that as you do so, we would always give you all the glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.